times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked. Now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio. And your host is Laura Redmond. On this program, Laura will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here is your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome to another episode of Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and I am so happy to bring information to you every week that is there to help you, to help you have a better life, a happier life, a more embodied life. And the way I define embodied is an alignment of the heart, the mind, and the soul. Naked is simply a metaphor, really. It's just how you feel on the inside is the true meaning of naked. It has nothing to do with what you look like. And today we're talking about endings and beginnings. Very big, big topic. I'm grateful to have the help of Dr. Bonnie Comfort, who I will introduce very shortly. Bonnie has great information for all of us and is a renowned helper of others. But before I give a formal introduction of Dr. Comfort, I wanted to just mention that according to the latest census, approximately 50% of adults in the U.S. are legally married. 17% have been married more than once. Yet about half of all marriages end in divorce. What goes wrong? Why do couples fight? How can they overcome feeling hurt and angry and distant? What can they do to fix it? This is what part one of our program will be about today. We're going to focus on what you can do to improve your intimate partnerships, whether it's a legal marriage or a fully committed long-term relationship. Part two today of our program program is about coping with the loss of your partner from either death or divorce. How does one navigate this brutal pain? How do you rebuild your life? How do you find peace again? We're resilient, but there are also steps that you can take to help yourself through this most difficult journey. And to help us learn more about those takeaway tools, I am thrilled and excited to introduce Dr. Bonnie Comfort. Bonnie received her PhD in clinical psychology from the California Graduate Institute, Los Angeles, and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. She is licensed as a clinical psychologist in both California and Oregon, where she has been in private practice for many years, concentrating on treatment of anxiety, depression, marital problems, and life transitions. Dr. Comfort's also a writer. Her first fiction novel, Denial, was published in the U.S. by Simon & Schuster in 1995 and translated and published in six foreign countries. She is currently working on a memoir of her 33-year marriage and her recovery from the death of her husband in 2010. Welcome, Dr. Bonnie Comfort. 
Thank you so much for having me, Laura. I'm delighted to be here. I think when you help as many people as you do, it's such a great privilege to have your help on a radio show where we have so many listeners out there all over the country, many who might be struggling this exact second with the crisis that we call divorce. I find it so hard to even put words to what that can feel like. I went through it myself several years ago, and I have to say that it felt like the biggest crisis in my entire life. Many times it was impossible to imagine how I would go on, reading the statistics as to how many marriages don't make it. As we open today, what would you like to say just about what that really means in our in our world now, the whole concept of divorce? Well, I think that divorce for so many people feels like a personal failure. And um, that makes it very painful in a way that losing a partner to death does not. It feels like a rejection. It feels like the loss of not just the relationship, but also shared dreams and a future together. And it leaves you feeling adrift and not knowing what your future holds in any way. Not that any of us really know what our future holds, but when we are in a long-term relationship, we believe that there, whatever happens, we're going to be experiencing with our partner. So um, it feels shattering to get divorced because you don't know what life is going to be like without your partner. You don't know if you'll find somebody else. You don't know what you did that led to the demise of your relationship. If you have children, you have the pain of trying to navigate sharing parenting with a person who no longer lives with you. You have to deal with their uh, pain and upset about being separated from one parent or another all the time and from trying to explain and and also worrying that you have failed to give your children a good role model for how to have mm. a loving relationship. I wish so much that the wedding vows could include the fact that love withers and revives again and again and again and again because I think that it's fair to say when anyone takes that big step into marriage and speaks their vows, no one goes into marriage thinking that it's going to end in divorce. And Absolutely when it does, not. Yeah, you know, I mean, that, that would not be exactly the point or reason to get married if you think it's going to end. You think it's going to hold you and carry you. And it's going to have big waves, little waves, many undertoes and the fact of the matter is, I just don't think we are capable in many instances with the difficult parts of marriage. I mean, we hear the vows that are traditional in, you know, better or worse, sickness and health, uh, rich and poor. But the truth is, when all those difficult moments show up, really what it takes to navigate that and keep the connection is so much more difficult than we ever get taught or we ever learn or those vows signify. So what would you say is, how would you respond to that? Well, I think that um, we marry for many reasons at different phases in our lives, but our overriding desire is to marry for romantic love, for love. And we 
tend to see our partner in a kind of glowing light with some fairy dust around them in the first few years of our relationship where we um, think they're attractive and interesting and fun and capable. And we have this dream about the person giving us what we've always wanted in our lives. Finally, we are set free from our families of origin and we have what we want in the other person. And as time goes by, there's a disillusionment that takes place because we discover the dark side of Uh, the things that we love about the person that we've chosen. And every personality trait that has a great positive side also has a dark side. And when we encounter that, we begin to be terribly disappointed and angry and disillusioned and feel that there's a huge letdown. Um, Like, for example, you find a person who you think is spontaneous and fun-loving and adventurous, and you fall in love with that aspect of her. And then a few years later, you begin to resent the fact that she doesn't like to plan, she gets bored easily, and she doesn't like the drudgery of household chores. And so we need to learn to tolerate the differences between us as they emerge. When we begin a relationship, we find everything we have in common. As the years go by, we discover truly what our differences are, and then we have to call on our generosity and our love and acceptance of the other person to weather that. What do you think when, I mean, because it's so interesting, like I often say, I don't know if anyone even really knows who the other one is for several years, that illusion and that excitement and that romance and that sexual heat is like a veil between that darker shadowy side of humankind. So let's just say that you're in that marriage and Two, three years into it, you start to really sense that shadow of other, that darkness, that part that is not at all attractive to you. What would be something a couple could do in the very beginning of their difficulty to help salvage the relationship and address that divide or difficulty? Well, the people who are masters at Uh, crafting long-term harmonious marriages learn how to talk about themselves with each other in a non-threatening way. So let's say you discover three years into your marriage that your partner isn't good at physically looking after you when you're sick. The first thing that she wants to do is leave the house or you know, or get angry at you for being sick. She can examine herself and say, why is it that I have that feeling? Why is it that I don't like looking after my partner when he's sick? Isn't that something that was in our marriage vows? And if you can search your soul and say, okay, I wasn't treated well when I was growing up. When I was sick, my father told me to just suck it up and, you know, and I needed to just kind of not complain. So um, I can go to my partner and say, I realize that I'm letting you down a little bit because you want me to bring you tea and you want me to rub your leg and 
I just want to run screaming the other direction, and I'm going to try to work on that. Hmm. So actually being honest about the shortcoming that is your own shortcoming as opposed to being defensive and guarded against that which is your shortcoming. Exactly, exactly. I mean, um, John Gottman, who has a marriage research lab in Seattle, has done a tremendous amount of research on why marriages fail. And he describes the this, he, he refers to the worst um, aspects of a relationship that deteriorates as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the apocalypse being divorce. And one of them is defensiveness, which is just what you're talking about. If your spouse complains about something, you respond by making excuses, by complaining about him instead, about disagreeing, about, um, uh, or, or, or you respond by shutting down and withdrawing rather than saying, okay, I'm going to listen to this. I hear that you're not happy with something I've done. I'm going to think about it. I'm not going to be so defensive and feel so attacked that what I need to do is hit back. Well, and and perhaps with that in mind, if you come into a marriage with an, an awareness of what you're carrying into that relationship that may have come from your childhood. In fact, let me just stop and ask you, do you think that all of our weaknesses, I'm going to call it, or our wounds, our our life wounds, our, our bloody experiences on the inside, are they all coming from that childhood that we've experienced primarily Well, it may not be childhood. It can happen to you in middle school or adolescence or college where you have some traumatic experiences that change your feeling about yourself. But it Mm -hmm. isn't just, uh, yes, uh, I guess the answer to, to your question in my mind is that our expectations about what love is going to be like are shaped before we meet the person that we choose to marry. And we have assumptions that we may not even realize. Um, And some of the things that we don't know or some of the things that shape us are what our love languages are, how we want to feel loved, what it is that makes us feel loved. And that does happen before we meet the person we choose to marry. You know, maybe somebody needs a lot of physical touch or a very intense sexual experience. Maybe for another person it isn't that. It's receiving gifts or giving gifts that makes a person feel loved. Or it's quality time where you actually spend time face-to-face with each other on a regular basis and have conversations. Um, What I see is that Occasionally, I have in my office a couple who really don't need to be there for very long because they have a really good working relationship, and the operating principles are, are, of it are something that they have developed over time. They learn to treat each other with respect. They don't argue about who is right because they understand that the competition between them for who is smarter or who is more accurate isn't as important as how the other person feels. 
So, but occasionally I see one of the, these couples who are v- there for a very brief time because they are good at tending the garden of the marriage all along, seeing, oh, there's a weed that needs to be attended to. I'm going to talk to my partner about that right now. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to water it and feed it and give my partner a lot of affirmation and recognition. Uh, I recognize that what I think of my partner matters tremendously to him or her. And um, so one of the rules for making a marriage work is learning to behave respectfully towards your partner. Uh, and, and, and maybe a, another takeaway tool with that is to not respond or react until you actually hear what your partner is trying to say. Because I think a lot of times when the heat of the battle is happening, and this was true for my marriage, there was a sense that everyone's, our defense mechanisms started to peak in, in the in the heat of the battle. And, and when that happens, you can't hear, you can't respond. I know in psychological terms, it's called flooding because yes. you literally feel like you are being pulled under by that undertow I referred to initially where you can't breathe, you can't, all you can do is go to fight or flight in that midbrain. And so when you're in that place, when you feel that trigger, what can you do? I mean, I guess just breathe and be quiet and let your partner speak. Um, Well, the important thing is that the two of you discuss that ahead of time, what you're going to do if if you start escalating into an argument where it begins to feel like you are going to be hurling insults at each other and you're furious, you're furious. The important thing is to take a break. To say, okay, okay look, I, if I get to the point where I want to yell at you and say things that I will regret later, I'm going to say, let's stop this. I need to walk around the block. I need to go away and think about it. I promise you I will come back. So you agree that you'll interrupt that before it gets too destructive, and you will go away from each other either 10 minutes, an hour, three days. You will give a promise of return to talk about the subject, but you don't want to say things that you will regret later because words have great power. And once you said something really ugly, your partner remembers it. Sometimes she or he remembers it way more than anything great you've said. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So you almost have to trust in what is difficult and then allow, if both of you go into the agreement of marriage, knowing that there is going to be great difficulty that we must learn to trust then before you hit the heat of the battle, you have certain standards that you've set up and agreed upon. So when that moment happens, you're both protecting the love because that anger can kill the love. Absolutely. Absolutely it can. And and if your relationship becomes one that creates a hostile environment for you most of the time, you you think you're better off leaving. It isn't a way to live. You don't want to be living with your enemy. And I guess, is it fair to say that love does expire in some stories, that it, it, is, not, it is not possible to move forward because that difficulty and that 
anger and that darkness has overcome the love. So then the love is less than the non-love. I mean... What's interesting, you use the word expire, because when I think about an atmosphere of hostility, I think about love being destroyed, not expiring. But the other way that a marriage fails is through distance between people, and that is when love does expire. When one person withdraws to protect himself or herself, shuts down, the partner feels that there isn't interest in the other one, or you live very separate lives, or you don't talk very much about what's going on between you, or you distract each other with many other things in life for which there's constant distraction. You know, there's screen time, there's physical activities, there's there's um, substance use, there's work. All of that distracts from the relationship itself and creates a sense of loneliness between you and distance and that is where love expires because what happens is you set the ground rule you set the groundwork for an affair you set the groundwork for feeling like somebody else would be better for me than this or I feel so lonely in this relationship I'd feel better off alone so I want to go back to the idea that when the difficulty first shows up in the marriage and you realize that you must take a time out in order to become more grounded and Mm -hmm. calm and kind, if possible, that sounds so great as a concept. But when that trigger, and I guess it's why it's called a trigger, when that trigger hits a couple, it is so, that is the most difficult thing to do, is to calm down, breathe, take a break, go to timeout. What happens when one is triggered, I think, is your words do fly, and the weapons, as we refer to the words that are in that moment, they're like weapons, you're right, They, they are, words are weapons, they're very powerful tools, so you don't want to misuse them when you are triggered. So I almost wonder if there is a takeaway exercise that you could give people beyond that time out, for example, that walk or that three days off, because mm-hmm. sometimes that time out does shut down a dialogue or it does shut down the ability to believe that there's any headway to be made with the difficulty. So what would be something when you have not been able to put that time out into effect and you can tell that you're in the heat of a battle that is going nowhere, in fact, it's taking you down so fast, what can you do in that moment to gain the groundedness that is needed to not destroy the love? You have to practice doing these things because it takes work to calm yourself down. So the first thing to do is to try to physically calm yourself down, to say, okay, I'm going to take a minute here, I'm going to breathe deeply, and I'm going to listen to what my partner is saying and look for the meaning underneath it. So, for example, you might think, okay, we are arguing about money and we are furious with each other. Let's stop and say, tell me what is underneath this? What are you afraid of? What are you worried about when we are arguing about money? And let's speak one at a time 
I will listen while you talk, and then I'm going to say back to you what I think I heard from you and ask you, is that correct? Is that what you meant? So there's that, but but we need to um, uh, limit our arguments to one issue at a time because when you talk about flooding, that's one of the things that happens. If you start on a launch on a diatribe and you begin to talk about everything about your partner that you're upset about and you don't like, the other person just feels like, I might as well just give up. There's nothing about me you like. Mm. Boy, that's helpful. So I think you just said something that really made a great deal of sense to me, which is tell me what is it the root of this issue? What is going on for you? To find compassion for that the reactivity in that other person is some sort of a deep wound that if you can think of it as the pain that they're feeling, it then switches the defensiveness. Because I know in my story, it was the defensiveness that was so difficult for me and would make me feel so defensive back. And so then all of a sudden, you're just two defensive people, no one's hearing anybody. And yet, I know that anytime someone is upset, angry, crying, sad, in a bad place, there's a wound under that. There's something that's happened to that person that's before you, the partner, that needs to be acknowledged. And there's something so beautiful and powerful when a loving partner can say, oh, wait a minute, What what is going on with you right now? What's being activated about money for you right now what happened in your life with money that made you this you know uh, unhappy and I think unhappy is such a better word than angry you know whereas a partner says why are you so mad or why are you so angry actually if you just say what about money makes you so unhappy do you think that the unhappy use of language would be more effective for opening up your partner than the word angry for example um, it may be because the anger covers other feelings. The anger, when you feel threatened, is your default position. But it may be that you're really scared. You're afraid that you won't have enough money or what money represents to you. So you might ask, okay, well, tell me what, what it represents to you. What, what is the, you know, your philosophy? philosophical issue under here. Does it mean freedom to you? Does it mean security? Does it mean that you won't be, you know, die alone and without anything? What what does that mean to you? And then do you feel somehow that if I spend money that you've earned that you're being taken advantage of? And where does that come from? So if there's a curiosity about your partner's reaction and it's asked with love and generosity, it's a very different stance than an accusation. So great. Bonnie, we're going to go to break. I can't wait to come back. Today we're talking about relationships, loss, and self-transformation. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to feelgoodnakedradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redman, and today we are very lucky to have our guest, Dr. Bonnie Comfort, a renowned therapist who works a lot with relationships, individuals, and how to make love a more successful outcome between people. We're talking about beginnings and endings And I wanted to open this section with a beautiful quote from Rilke, the poet Rilke. Rilke says, Everything in nature grows and defends itself any way it can, and is spontaneously itself, tries to be itself, at all costs and against all opposition. We know little, but that we must trust in what is difficult is a certainty that will never abandon us. It is good to be solitary. For solitude is difficult. That something is difficult must be one more reason for us to do it. It is also good to love, love being difficult. Love is perhaps the most difficult task given us, the most extreme, the final proof and text for which all other work is only preparation. Mm, What a beautiful quotation. I love that. And I think that does tie in what we were saying earlier about the difficulty, which is unavoidable in love. It is unavoidable because you're two different people with two different histories. And as much as you may have in common, the greatest capacity that you must grow is the ability to tolerate differences between you with generosity and to navigate differences intelligently so that you learn how to disagree in a way that is respectful to your partner and where you learn that compatibility is an achievement of love. It is not a precondition. What do you do, Bonnie, when you realize in a marriage or a long-term relationship that you're actually having the same fight over and over and over again, although it may come out as different 
issues or different words, at the root of that difficulty is the same fight. How do you break that monotony and pattern that is just so deadening in a long-term love affair? Uh, Well, I think that the interesting thing about that is that um, we often choose a partner who brings to us the very work that we need to do for ourselves, a partner who repeats sometimes the wounds that we thought we were going to cure by marrying this person. And we don't know it until years into the relationship that we, as one marital therapist says, we all marry our unfinished business. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, if you are a person who felt somewhat ignored as you were growing up, that your voice wasn't heard at home, that what you thought or felt didn't matter to your parents and you were just silenced and and, um, not attended to, you may feel wonderfully in love with the person you marry at the time you marry. And then as the years go by, you find yourself feeling ignored again and not heard. And that is a deep wound in you, and it's important to identify it because that is a repetition of something that happened earlier in your life, and it's your issue. It's your hot-button issue. You hate to be ignored. You don't want to feel that your voice and what matters to you isn't listened to. And so when you see repeated patterns of conflict, it usually signals that there is a... Um, uh, an issue that is unresolved and you need to discover what it is inside of you so that you can present it to your other person differently because being critical and blaming the other person for why you don't feel good never gets you where you want to go. And if you take responsibility for who you are, which is why I always say at the end of my shows, you complete you. That other person cannot complete you. So taking ownership of those flaws that we all have, I believe, probably is the greatest way to keep that continued argument from becoming defensive but constructive and hopefully moving on to something else. And each person has, each partner has to take the time to think, well, why is that such an issue for me? Why am I reacting so harshly? And what can I do to react differently or understand myself differently and understand my partner with generosity and with kindness? And then that argument doesn't keep happening again and again and again. Well, it it may <laughs> it may rear its head frequently, but it won't have as much power as it used to. <laughs> Which is yeah. the hope, the hope yeah, in the story. It is the hope. Yeah. So, so let's transition over to the very difficult concept of loss. And I and I know that you had a thirty three year marriage, and you lost your beloved husband. He he died, and and you had to survive that, and somehow get through that. Yes. So let, let's talk a little bit now about the loss of the beloved. And, and as you put in your pre-show notes, whether it's death or divorce, although in the opening you mentioned that there is the rejection aspect of divorce that does not exist with death. But, but let's just open this conversation with your thoughts about loss. Well, um, it is... Uh, 
grief is something that even if it was expected because you your partner has had a lingering illness as my husband did or whether it's precipitous your partner dies in an accident or a sudden heart attack you are somewhat in shock after the actual death and you have to be still in that you have to allow yourself to grieve and go through a roller coaster of sad emotions and changes from one day to the next and um it's <laughs> the the I used to say and I'm not there so much anymore but in the first 2 years after my husband died I felt like an immigrant from a foreign country where nobody I was with knew my old language or had any shared memories of all those years I lived. Mm. And, uh, and that is one of the things that you lose when you lose your partner of, of a long time, shared language, the ways you had a private vocabulary, little ways that you kidded each other, pet names for each other, shared memories, shared children, and and then there is nobody to share that with anymore who knows that old language. And so it's disorienting. And I think um, it's important to take solace in what is familiar. If you have a partner who's died, I mean, I found it incredibly comforting to be surrounded by all of the artifacts of my life with my husband, all of his particular possessions that meant a lot to him. I did not clean out my house and give everything away quickly because they were still imbued with his essence to me, and I felt comforted by being near them, being near his you know, his clothes or his writing implements or his hats. And I just left them until there was a point where those objects lost that that power for me. I have things of his still, but many of them no longer became important to me once I solidified his presence in my life inside of me for the rest of my life. And grief, wouldn't you agree that grief is so personal? So what what you went through there is honoring your grief process. And, and I think one of the things that I find is that many people just want to skip over the grief because it is so brutal and it is so difficult. And you're right, it's your life is no longer recognizable in any way. And so how to make sense of each day and putting one foot in front of the other. And and I believe there is great value in honoring the grief process, whatever that may personally be for each person and for certain not to avoid it or to try to deny it. It's very important not to avoid it. Um, there are people who want to just put everything away, hide everything, try to move on with their lives. I, I met somebody uh, uh, and several years after my husband died, who said, well, my, my wife died six weeks ago, and I'm over it now. Oh. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, well, that's going to come back and haunt you later, because yeah. it's impossible to be ever entirely over it. 
the the person that you love, even though they are no longer walking this earth, you still have a relationship with that person. That person is still there in your memory, in your heart. And it's important to cry. It's important to grieve and not shove it away because it can come back um, unexpectedly and disable you. Yeah, for sure. David White says that when someone dies, whether by death or divorce in your life, that the relationship continues until the very last breath that you take, because even though they're not physically there, even though they're not vocally there, they are in you. They are cellularly in you. So the relationship unfolds with that conscious awareness of that person's impact in your life and how they affected your personality. Absolutely. And, you know, when we're talking about divorce, you don't want to entirely trash your ex-partner in your own mind because that devalues you and your choice of that person and the years that you shared together. You still want to find a way to honor what was good about that relationship and make your peace with the fact that it was wise to end it when it ended. And when it comes to a a dearly loved person who you've lost, it's different than that. You want to hold that person dear to you, and it is part of your life for the rest of your life. But there are other tasks, and one of them, both with divorce and with the death of a partner, is you need to reclaim your identity as a separate person. Mm. And that takes time and effort. And that definitely leads us into self-transformation. You know, it's interesting. I um, I wish my ex-husband love every day, every day. That's and wonderful. It's, it's often in meditation, but I send that energy to him because I do believe that that is a direct reflection on my own self-transformation. It's like knowing that there is hope um, in my life, and I wish him great hope. And I do believe that anyone can do that in the most difficult moments of their life with a lot of self-work, but that then leads to self-transformation. That is an enormous accomplishment on your part to be able to move from being shattered and being angry and being utterly confused to taking, you know, the years go by and the work that you do to feel, okay, I still honor and respect that person. I still send that person love, even though we are no longer together, even though I still remember profoundly being hurt by this person. This is a person who shared years with me, and I don't want to cut those years out of my life. No, and it took me so long to be able to do that, but it was all an effort to really embrace forgiveness, mm. and it was, a, it was a struggle for me to really know what that meant for me, and I finally was able to get there, and it, it changed my entire life very deeply and meaningfully, so it's, it's not an easy takeaway tool, but it's certainly worth it, and it takes a great deal of focus and concentration. What, well, Go it's, ahead, a, sorry. it's wonderful. It's wonderful that you were able to transform yourself in that way because none of us marry thinking this person is awful. <laughs> you no. know. And no. and and we get 
caught up in those awful deteriorating fights and we we can't help ourselves it isn't that the person you're with is just evil <laughs> it's, it's not no. that no it's, and and you can't have that approach or attitude as you said, with someone that you have created a life with at some point, because that reflects more than on your character if you have, I think, a negative attitude or vitriol towards the other. I think it's so self-transformational to be able to say, you know, I have not loved in my life like I loved that person but I did love that person at one point, and now I must move on and find love in other ways. And and this this also leads to how I was able to really self-transform was to allow other people to show me love that I didn't expect to find love from. And And sometimes this might have been in a grocery store late at night just trying to grab some milk and a few pieces of fruit and some mm. food and that checkout person looked me in the eyes and would say how's your night going and that right there was the sense of love when all else had had left my my sense of love because my beloved was no longer in my life mm-hmm. what what for you led to your self transformation once that grief lifted or at least transitioned into something else? Well, I discovered that I needed solitude as much as I needed contact with other people. Um, And I found solace in my own solitude, in embracing what was good about my husband that I could always hold to me. And also now wondering, well... You know, in a long marriage, you shape yourself to the other person's tastes and preferences. Well, what do I want now? I could start asking questions like, well, what do I really think about this? What do I want? What would be good for me now? Because I don't have to consider his needs anymore. I can think about what would be fun for me or or what I'm curious about. And it's healing to say, well, I'm still alive. I'm here. I still will experience more of life. And I will always love him and honor him in my mind. But I can go out and enjoy myself with friends. I can love again. I can um, look at the at the birds and the trees and the sky and feel his presence and feel that he's not ever really gone from me. And and you actually, I mean, I I didn't know your husband, but through the different stories that you've shared with me, I feel like I knew him. You do have a way of keeping his spark alive through that common shared life together. So it's interesting how when we're talking about death, when you've loved someone so deeply that is no longer here, that person that's still here brings them to life through their okay. own. Yes. So it's it's a wonderful way to keep the soul and the, the heart of that person as part of your own fabric of life. 
Well, and it's wonderful to reminisce, especially with people who knew the person who died, to reminisce and laugh and delight in memories of funny times you shared together. I have a woman in my practice right now whose husband died two years ago, and it was it was after a, a 20-year marriage, and it was um, uh, very, really devastating for her, for her. But she will, in a therapy session with me, regale me with a story about where <laughs> they were when they were... Uh, uh, scuba diving and how hilarious her husband was in entertaining the people in the grocery store near them and she comes to life when she does that and she enjoys that memory and him all over again and it helps heal her that's so great and and I feel that way too with the concept of divorce is I want to keep the memories the memories that were wonderful memories, the memories that created a family and a home. I want to always keep those in a special box. I don't want those to be turned into something other than what they truly were. And I think it's so important because it devalues you and your choice if you don't do that. And I also want to say that it's very important if you have children that are underage, that are still in your home and you're sharing parenting, that you don't say a lot of negative things about your ex partner, that your children need to think well of both parents, and you need to find a way to affirm the value of the other parent, even though you're divorced. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that that reminded me of when you just said that was what you were saying earlier, almost when you're in that heat of battle with a partner and remembering, remembering the things that were good, feeling that that core belief that this person is doing the best they can, but they're hurting, you know, keeping those manners almost within the whole spectrum of your life, whether it's with the children that have their two realities or whether it's with that spouse that is driving you crazy, but you know deep down there is a thread of love that brought you together initially or whether it's telling those stories after a beloved has passed on keeping an integrity about the whole idea of a connection and a love that is so important to hold on to even when everything feels like it's been wiped away in your life. Yes, but I just going back to being in the heat of battle in a marriage, I think it's so important to take a mental break from that and think about what it feels like for your wife or your husband at that moment. What is it that is that he is going through? What is the hurt that he's experiencing? Maybe he doesn't know any other way to cope with it other than what he's doing then he needs to do the work, darn it. (laughs) Because I do think (laughs) all of us need to do the work in order to have fulfilling relationships. And you don't get through the relationship process without that kind of devotion to self. One thing I saw, Bonnie, when we were getting ready to go on the air, I I happened to look at this wonderful book and I wanted to share this quote with you because I think it's a good way to wrap up this incredible show today, which is the quote reads, grief is like the ocean It comes in waves, ebbing and flowing. Sometimes the water is calm, and sometimes it is overwhelming. All we can do is learn to swim. (laughs) I I love that. That's from Vicki Harrison, and I really um, 
I love that quote. And and in closing, I would love for you to just share with all of our listeners one thing that you know for sure about your self-transformation, looking back at all the heartache and difficulty of losing your beloved after 33 years together and looking at your beautiful life today and all of its excitement and love and um, generosity. What, what, it, what would be a takeaway for anyone out there that's really hurting and can't see the other side of the self-transformation, what is one thing you know for sure about your own self-transformation? One thing I know about the transformation that I went through in grief and in recovery is that my husband would want me to thrive. He would want me to love again. He would want me to be happy. Mm. Ah. And I have to say, being such a lucky woman to know you, your joy and your happiness and your loving, loving heart makes me happy to be in your presence. So I know he would be so very thrilled to see what you've done with your life after such a profound loss. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And the other thing I guess I'm thinking is also that what I see with myself and with other people who have lost a longtime partner to death is that whatever wasn't good in the marriage kind of fades away. And what you remember and what you hold dear to you is all of the good stuff. And that is healing for you. Mm. And maybe that's one of the ways to anchor someone who's just really in the throes of grief in this very second as they're listening is to hold on, to know that it will change, to know that it will transition, and to stay very cognizant of that loving, good, beautiful stuff that once existed. Exactly, exactly. You know, um, take solace in your good memories take solace in walking out in the world. I have one person who said, I I stood very close to a tree. I felt a tree. I felt the sense of the seasons changing and how brief all of our lives are on this earth and how important it is to embrace just every precious moment because it's so brief. It's so brief. So to invite yourself out of aloneness and know that you can have love in your life if you practice love. And offer love. Yes. Yes. Thank and you, Doctor. I have to say, I just have to say one more thing, and that is that, you know, looking for love after a long marriage and when you're in your 50s or 60s or 70s, it's a very different process than when you're in your 20s with your whole life ahead of you and you're looking for children and a house to buy and the dream. But it's it's possible and it's hopeful no matter what your age, I believe. I, yes, yes. I know people in their 80s who are falling in love. <laughs> that that That's a very hopeful story, and my father would be one of those lovely um, people. So, Dr. Bonnie Comfort, thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight today. Oh, thank you for being such a wonderful interviewer and your own sharing of yourself. 
Oh, you bet. And as I say at the end of each show, everyone out there, don't forget, you complete you. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Lar Redmond. Please join us again this Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. <laughs>